Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. It is so good to be back. We, uh, our family that is, we put many, many miles on a, a vehicle here the last few weeks. We flew part of the way, but then we drove a lot of the way. And one of the things that we like to do when we're driving around uh, in other parts of the country is try to note all the different license plates we see. Like, we, we, it's like a game for us, okay? We're like 50 states, even though some of them wanted to go with just 48 because of the logistical issues with Hawaii and perhaps even Alaska. But we said 50 states. That's what we're going for to see if we can find all those different license plates. And do you know what? We found 49. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Plus... Four provinces of Canada, and I think at least one state in Mexico. That's pretty cool. West Virginia, they don't go on vacation. <laughs> Obviously not to Yellowstone, or to Glacier, or anywhere out west. But you know, I was thinking about that as we play this little game, as we look at it. We think about the different tags, and really, within the, within the license plate themselves, like within the different states or within even the same state, you will find differences. We'll see certain things, and we'll be like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a different one. And we get there, and it's a personalized tag. You know, <clears throat> we're like, oh, no, it's just Montana again. It's just Wyoming. How many of those have we seen? But there are differences. You know, you think about it, people themselves are different. We saw a lot of different people when we were on vacation. A lot of different folks, folks that were from the localities that we visited, also people from across the states, as I indicated, even people from across the world. There were all kinds of different people. You know what the, different, uh, the definition of a different person is, right? Somebody who's not like you. So everybody's different. Hey, actually look at the person next to you and say, you are different. <laughs> say it just like that. You are different. You are. You know, my grandparents used to use the word curious. Those people are curious. I'd say, what did you say? They're curious. What does that mean? It's like curious, but they're different. They're just different. Well, you know what? There are different people. And here this morning we have noted, even among ourselves, that we are different. But what's awesome is there is one God. There is one salvation. And no matter what our differences, no matter what our hearts look like, no matter what our backgrounds are, we can attain salvation through the one Jesus Christ. There are differences but there is the same salvation. I want to show you this morning in Acts 16, the different individuals that encounter the salvation of Jesus. Now, I know Acts 16 is very ambitious for us to get through this morning. So I'm going to read part of the scripture now. And then when you get home this afternoon or before you go to bed tonight, you're going to read the rest of it. Yes, you will get home much sooner. You will read the rest of it to make sure that the preacher was telling the truth when he was going through these different events. But I want to share with you just a portion, and then we'll talk about the three different hearts that we see in Acts 16 and how they experience the same salvation, the salvation through Jesus, 
our Lord. Beginning in verse 11, it says, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. So remember, as Jacob shared with you last week, God had directed their mission. They had hoped to go in certain directions, but they didn't, they didn't have the liberty of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to them and, and through a vision called them to this area of Macedonia, a place that is located in modern-day Greece. And as they go, they travel together, Paul and Silas, and obviously Dr. Luke has joined them because it says we. Dr. Luke is there with them, so he is giving us an eyewitness account of what happens. He said, we're there in Philippi, which is a remarkable city of Philippi, one of the foremost cities of the day. And he says, while we were there, look, if you will, in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So here they are in the city. They're trying to find a place, obviously, of worship. Now, typically, if there were at least 10 Jewish men in a community, they would have a synagogue. 10 Jewish men meant that you would build a synagogue in the city. But I would suggest here there's no synagogue. Usually, Paul would start at the synagogue. Why? Because that's where he would find people, and he would have a commonality, and he could talk to them about this common faith in Yahweh, but Yahweh now who has been demonstrated through the salvation of Jesus, through his Messiah. So there's no synagogue. So they're around, and I don't know, they're trying to find out where the people are meeting for prayer. There's got to be some believers who are here, some people who are uh, giving their lives at least to Yahweh. And where would that place be? So they went down to the local barber shop to find out where everything happens. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. But they find out that there's a prayer meeting at the river. So they go down to the river. And there at the river, there's a prayer meeting of women. There are people who have given their lives to Yahweh, but they have not fulfilled salvation. They have not known salvation through Jesus. Verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So he goes down and he begins to talk to them. I'm, I'm sure that they were longing to hear a word from God. At least a word from Yahweh. That's what they were hoping. They were there praying and all of a sudden you have this esteemed rabbi named Paul who has shown up. And he begins to tell them, I would say, he would begin to preach the gospel to them. And as he was sharing with them, this one named Lydia, she was, I believe, a shrewd businesswoman. She was a person of some type of affluence. She was a person who had worked in her trade. But she was a person who had a tender heart. A tender heart for Yahweh. Because she had adopted the God of Israel, the God of the Jews. She had recognized that even as a Gentile. She had known that this message that had been spoken to Israel, that had been communicated through, to the world through Israel, that this God, this message was true. 
So as he speaks to her the good news of Jesus, it says that she opens her heart. Actually, God opens her heart. I love the sensitivity of that, how God brings conviction in his own way to this tender heart. And look at what the Scripture says. The Scripture says in verse 15, And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. She accepts the message of Christ. She accepts it by faith, and she follows the Lord through baptism to demonstrate an outward expression of what happens to her inwardly. Lydia. Again, I call her a tender-hearted individual that the Lord saved the tender-hearted. And the Lord does save the tender-hearted, doesn't he? There are so many people that I've seen through the years in the church that I would say are tender-hearted people. I'd say that they're sweet kind of folks. Now, not everybody. We're all different. There are some that are not so sweet. There are some that are more of the substitutionary sugar that you would get off of the table. But there are many who are sweet. There are many who are tender. This week, vacation Bible school occurred here on this campus. Jason was texting me Friday and said that there were several who accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I'm sure that many of those were tender-hearted individuals. Just tender, sweet individuals. Now, again, I could tell you about Miss Louise. I could tell you about Miss Sue. I was talking with Leslie as we would travel this week. I would say, now, who do you think I ought to talk about when you talk about somebody that's sweet? And we talked about different ones in different churches, some of the older ladies that I have seen come to faith and who followed in baptism. And I could tell you about all those, but don't have quite enough time. Let me just go about to something more recent and maybe even more personal for me. And that was when my seven-year-old accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. She was sitting right up there. She was in the midst of the worship service. The music was occurring. The songs were being sung. I told Jeremy that never underestimate what the worship of God can do in a person's heart and life. And as she was standing there, she looked up at her mama and she said, Jesus just came into my life. And Leslie, of course, said, what? Jesus just came into my heart? She said, okay, just let's, let's, just, let's talk in just a little bit, okay? Because the worship was going and all of that. Of course, she grew up in a preacher's home, and she obviously has heard the gospel many times, whether it be at church or wherever, in the home or whatever. And uh, after the service, uh, she, uh, she wanted to come see me. She wanted to make sure she came to my office. And she came to my office, and she began telling me that she had accepted Jesus. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm very, very careful with the child, especially mine. There's a difference between a curious child and a convicted child. Now, it's good for them to be curious. They ought to ask every question possible. But I want them to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of, of who they are and what, it, what has happened in their life and how Jesus can bring the true salvation to them. So we talked a little bit, and uh, she affirmed to me in her own sweet way that she was saved. Got in the vehicle afterwards. She said, can I tell my 
can I tell, actually I think she said, can I tell Abigail? I said, sure, if you want to tell, go ahead and tell. So she told her siblings that she'd been saved. Then the next Sunday, we were kind of waiting a little bit. Because I'm going to tell you, again, I'm very cautious. I'm probably too cautious, but I'm a little cautious. And I said, let's just kind of wait and let's see if this is a real thing that's settled into our heart. I don't want to really jump on this and let's see. So uh, the next Sunday came around and uh, we began to give the invitation here. And she looked up at her mom and said, am I not going down? She said, well, I don't know. We need to kind of just wait and see or whatever. So another little stanza so passed. She looked and said, I need to go down there today. So she came. She was saved. She had been saved actually the week before. She just expressed that to everybody in this place. Now, she's still not what she needs to be. A couple weeks ago before we got ready to go on our trip, I looked at her and I said, so you're going to be a good girl next week when we're on our trip. She looked at me and she said, Dad, nobody knows the future. Good theology. Good, good theology. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Here, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. She was saved. I want you, I want you to see this. God saves tender-hearted people, sweet people. Because sweet people don't go to heaven by themselves. Do you hear me? Nice people don't just go to heaven. Well, I've been nice. I've been kind. These people, they're so nice. They're so kind. Surely they're going to... No, 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 no. You will never be nice enough. You will never be sweet enough. You will never be kind enough. If you could have, the Father in heaven would have never sent his only son. No, he never would have. It would have been a cruel plan to send Jesus if there had been any other way. But sweet people need to be saved. Nice people need to be saved. What we consider good people, which we know all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but those that we determine to be good people, they need to be saved. You could sit on these pews every Sunday, and unfortunately you could slide right into a devil's hell. Salvation comes through only Jesus. Lydia had a connection with God. She was praying. Look, she was praying. She, she was wanting to seek Yahweh. And yet, it was only through Jesus that she could be saved. And that is the reason Paul preached to her. And A.T. Robertson says that a new day had dawned in Europe. When I was over there with Dale and the group a few weeks ago, we went to that little river, that little area there in Philippi where Lydia would have been baptized. They actually call it Lydia's River today. But Alexandra, who guided my group, she said, we refer to this as the European Jordan because this is where the Europeans, where we came to faith in Christ. This is where the gospel was preached. This was where the first convert on this continent came. Lydia gave her life to Christ. 
You are not too good to be saved. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, even the tenderhearted. I want to move, though, for sake of time again, to the next event that is told to us that occurs there in Philippi. It is about a slave girl who has been manipulated and exploited by her masters. As a matter of fact, it says that she has a spirit of divination. Literally, when you look at the Greek New Testament, it means a spirit of the python. Again, for those of us who traveled to Greece recently, we went down to that area called Delphi, which some of you may know for Greek literature, because Delphi was the place where oracles were given, where advice, where counsel from the supposed gods were given. And there at Delphi, the, the god Apollo and others, they were represented by a serpent, by a snake, like a python. So literally, she was a girl who would give oracles, who would tell people about the future based upon the oracles of Delphi. Basically, people who needed some decisions to be made, maybe they were high-ranking officials, kings, or leaders, they would come to Delphi and they would try to figure out which direction that they would go. So this girl had this spirit in her and she was telling people what they should do and giving them counsel and giving them their fortune. She encounters Paul and his team as they go to prayer meeting. And every time she would cry out, these are the servants of the Most High God. How would she know that? Because don't forget that all of these demons that make their way on this earth were once angels, and they had obviously seen the preexistent Jesus before. They knew who Jesus was, and they still do. They would cry out, these are the ones authenticating it. And it says that... Paul looks at her, and in verse 18, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. I would tell you that this individual, this young lady, was what I would call a terrorized heart. Her heart had been terrorized. It had been terrorized by Satan himself and his demons. There had been oppression. Now, I know some of you are going to disagree with me, and that's okay. You can certainly be wrong. But there are still evil spirits about our culture and in our society today. There are still demonic influences. There are still, there are still spirits terrorizing people's hearts and lives. I see some who struggle with addictions, alcoholism, drugs, pornography. And how difficult it is for those people to work through that addiction. Now, I'm all, listen, I'm all, I'm all for treatment centers. I'm all for the help that we can provide. I'm all for our medical folks. I'm all for those folks who are in counseling who help us. I'm all for those things. But I'm convinced that so much of that still is a demonic warfare. 
God uses the doctors. God uses the psychologists. God uses the counselors. Yes, he can. But understand that only the name of Jesus can bring peace to people's hearts and lives. It must be in the context of our Christ focus. There are demonic spirits alive and well. We see it within us. We see even in our culture. I'm just going to put it out there. When you see, when you see state and government leaders applauding laws that actually embrace the horrible, immoral practice of abortion, it is because of demonic influences in people's lives and hearts. There are evil spirits still terrorizing people. Terrorizing every day. Some of our friends and some of our family members. We know that they're doing that. And yet, it is through the power of Jesus. Because get, get this. Salvation is for the tenderhearted. But salvation is for those hearts that are terrorized as well. The slave girl who had been exploited, manipulated, and again, so many girls and boys, so many young children, too many today that are being exploited by people for profit. She experiences a peace and a wholeness through Jesus. She'd been terrorized by Satan. She'd been terrorized by the society, her owners, who used her for profit. And yet... God had shown his power as Paul preached or as Paul cast out that demon and she experienced salvation. You know, as difficult as it is to see people who struggle again with addictions and other things, I believe in the power of God. I believe that God can use them or work in them and God can use treatment centers and again he can use doctors and psychologists and counselors and preachers and friends and family members God can do that to bring healing to people's lives and hearts again I could give you several testimonies but I think of Michael there in Zachary Louisiana Michael was an alcoholic he was a young man who had grown up in his dad his pastor's, his dad who was a pastor's home. And yet he struggled with alcoholism. And I mean, it just seemed like it would just control him. He would call me often and talk to me, especially when he was in a drunken state. He would call me and talk to me about different things. He called me one day. I was in the office and he said, Brother Reggie, he said, can you come over to my apartment right now? I said, Michael, I'll be there. I knew I could tell on the phone that he was drunk. And I got there, I walked in, and Michael began telling me all these kinds of things and all the issues he had and all this and that. And, and again, I told him, I said, Michael, I said, you know that the only way that we're going to get you some help is that you surrender your life to Christ. And you, we, we've got to get you somewhere and help you. And he began to call me everything in the book, every word that was knowable, or unknowable, he was calling me. And I said, hey man, I said, I understand that. I said, won't you just settle down, 
when you kind of get over this and you actually have sobered up, let's talk again. And we went on back and forth, and I was getting ready to leave. I said, by the way, what you got in the fridge over here? I walked over at the fridge, and he had a couple, three beers with him. And I said, I'm just going to take these with me. He said, that's okay. I'll just go buy more, and I'll drink and drink and drink. I said, that's fine. I said, but at least as you walk down the street, you'll sober up maybe. I'm taking these with me. I took them with me. I went in the, the church office at First Baptist. I put those things up on the <laughs> counter. I said, ladies, it's party time. They said, Brother Reggie, what? I said, no, I'm not telling you to drink. Oh, it's party time because we took, took this away from that. Pray for Michael, I said. I said, pray for him. And you know what? Today, Michael is sober by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, his heart was terrorized. I could see it in his eyes. I could see it in his life. He couldn't hold a job. He couldn't do anything. His dad tried to help him, but yet he would fight back against his dad. He'd fight against me. He'd fight against the church. He'd fight against everybody. But guess what? The power of God is so good and so great that it reached down and it grabbed Michael and it saved him. And today he is living for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you that when you read this stuff in Scripture, when you see how the slave girl and her conflicted heart was saved, this stuff still happens today. This is not just a book of antiquity. This is a book of today. This is not just a book that tells us what happened. This is a book that tells us what still happens through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it made so many people mad. Her owners who had exploited her and manipulated her life, they began to go to the city officials and complain. Well, yes, their income had been cut off. They complained about these people, Paul and his missionary team. They began to say that these Jews, notice they didn't even have an understanding of their faith or their theology, but they said these Jews have come here and they have caused havoc they are trying to uproot the Roman Empire, the Roman establishment. And they made false accusations. The officials, they battered and they bruised Paul and Silas in particular. They left them bloody. And then they threw them in jail. Into the innermost parts, the scripture says, of the jail cell. So here are Paul and Silas in jail. What are they doing? Well, they're telling God their sad lot in life. They're saying, God, I told you if you had just let us go the other direction, we wouldn't have been in this situation. No, they weren't telling God that. That's what I would have been telling him. I'd have been complaining. I'd have been fussing. Just get it all out there, right? Look, I've been on a two-week journey with a family. I know I would have been complaining. <laughs> but they weren't. The Bible says that they start to sing. They start to praise the Lord. Maybe they sang something like we did this morning, Oh, praise the name. Or maybe they were singing, To God be the glory, or whatever. They were singing. And in the midnight, <laughs> a 
As they were worshiping, there was an earthquake that shook that jail. And that earthquake loosened the locks of those doors and the locks of those, uh, of those irons that were on them. And they were free, if you will. Well, the Philippian jailer, he woke up. He saw what was happening. He thought and assumed that all of the prisoners had escaped. And back in that day and age, if you had allowed that to happen, they were under your responsibility. You were accountable. If you had allowed that to happen, then in other words, you were going to be executed. So it was just better for him to kill himself. So he starts to kill himself when Paul speaks out and tells him not to do it because they're all there. Get this. Paul and Silas are still there. And obviously, I don't know why I hadn't noticed this before, but according to the scripture, they had convinced the other prisoners to stay there. That's some kind of influence, isn't it? They all stay. We're all here. We're all accounted for. And then in verse 30, the jailer brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. It is the only time in the New Testament that the question is directly asked and directly answered. I'm not telling you that there aren't other places in the Scripture where we see salvation and what salvation is. I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you it is the only place recorded for us in Scripture where the question is directly asked and it is directly answered. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Obviously, he had heard the message somehow from Paul and Silas. Maybe he had heard them in the crowd or whatever else. And he says, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul say? Paul says, well, you got to be good. Nope, again, he doesn't say that. Well, you got to keep all these commandments. No, he didn't say that. Well, you got to be baptized. Nope, he didn't say that. What did he say? He said, believe. The word there is for faith, trust. It is the verb form of faith. You have faith, you believe, you trust, you commit yourself totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? You will be saved. You will be saved. You and your household. See, I look at this third conversion, I'm reminded of the tough heart. Oh, that jailer, man, he, he must have been a tough guy. I mean, you don't just become a Roman jailer without being a tough guy, right? He must have been a tough guy with a tough heart. You know, you've seen those people. Again, I always try to go into this statue form for you all so you can imagine what a tough guy looks like. <laughs> I've got to stop this. I've got to defeat my purpose of illustrations. But he must have been a tough guy. The jailer who was there. But God, again, opened his heart and God rocked him through an earthquake in such a way that he was open to hearing the message of the good news and hearing how Jesus could save him. Oh, the Bible says that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. 
And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes where they had been wounded and beaten. And immediately, he and his family, they were baptized. In other words, again, they had accepted Jesus and they followed Jesus immediately through baptism to just tell everybody what, again, had happened inwardly, what they had done, their decision, what Christ, the Holy Spirit, had worked in their lives. Tough guy. Yeah, I've had some tough guys through the years come to know the Lord. Canaan Baptist Church, my first pastorate. I was there 18 months. Told them when I went. I said, go on to seminary. They said, yeah. And they said, yeah, we're going to New Orleans. You still going to call me? And they said, yeah, maybe you'll change your mind. You know, maybe you won't go to that cemetery, I mean seminary. <laughs> Mid-America, maybe you'll go there. You know, you'll be close to us and... I said, no, I'm going to New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans is the only true choice, right? Come on, people. 18 months I was there. Most Sundays we had about 35, 40 in worship. Homecoming, we'd break 50. I'd get up and I'd preach every morning. Sometimes Leslie would have to play the piano. That was the only reason they hired me, by the way, is because she could play the piano some. And uh, we were, you know, I'd get up and I'd preach. And li listen, 30, 40 people every Sunday, sometimes as little as 25, you think to yourself, you know, are all these people saved? What kind of evangelistic sermons are you going to bring? I remember getting up one morning and I preached a message. And all of a sudden when I stepped down, people just started coming out of the pews. I was like, what is this? The first one said something like, Brother Reggie, I, I want to be saved. I said, this is awesome. So I led her in a prayer. Then the next one. Then the next one. Four people had come to be saved. And then Mr. Wes. Leslie, we still remember Mr. Wes. He was back there. He was about in his 60s or so. He always wore jeans to church, and he always wore like a, a white T-shirt. You remember the like where they would roll the sleeves somewhat? He'd do that. Man, he was a tough, big guy. And I saw him. He was sitting just about, well, just about here, because it wasn't that big of a church. It was just about here, on the end. And he was doing this. He, 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 would, he would do this. He would go. Now, I've never seen Baptist dance, especially in North Mississippi, but it looked like a dance to me. And I looked at him. I remember to this day, that's been, oh, 20 or so years ago. And I looked at him, and, and, uh, and I just did my head like this. And he walked out. So what is it, Mr. West? He said, I need to be saved. He accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Five people, five people! It was like 10% of the congregation on our high Sunday. I remember one of the ladies, one of the deacon's wives came by and said, this is a red letter day in the history of Canaan Baptist Church. I said, man, it's an awesome day. We got ready for baptism. I never baptized before. So that, and I was worried. I mean, Mr. West was a big guy. I, I, I weighed 40 pounds less then. 
So what did I do? I took Leslie out to the church all week, and I went down and back and over and over and over. And I love her, but I'm still not sure she recovered from all that water intake that she had during that time. But I baptized her all week long. I would go out to the church and say, okay, I got to go out. We got to try this again, all right? And I told my deacons, I said, deacons, I said, listen, are there five people? There's some, there are a couple of children in here and all this that came first. The, the children were the ones that came first, by the way. It was amazing. I said, uh, so make sure we start with the children. Give me Mr. West last. Deacons don't listen to you. They don't hear anything. I'll look up. Who comes in very first? The first person I ever baptized in my life? Mr. West. He came in. The church, the little church was packed that night. He came in. I took him under. And the old baptistry, it was like water displacement occurred. You could hear brrrr or something. And you could hear across the congregation. <gasps> but he baptized himself. And I was so happy when he got out of there. Oh, the old Roman jailer. He was a tough guy. Every time I read the passage, every time I read it, I think of Mr. West. And I think of others. Because you know what I believe? I believe that the power of God is good enough and great enough even to penetrate the tough hearts. And there's some folks in here, maybe. You think of yourself as tough, and you say, if I come and, you know tell people that I need Jesus as my Savior, or even if I come, knowing that He's my Savior, even if I come and say, I've got a need in my life, it'll make me look weak. Folks, you and I ought not to worry about what other people in this sanctuary think of us. We ought to be worried about what God thinks of us and what God wants us to do when we come into this place. And you know what God really likes seeing from us? is for us to come and just confess and say, God, we're weak. We may look tough to people, but we're weak. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to bow before Him, give yourself to Him. You may come this morning with a question, what must I do to be saved? It is the same answer as it has always been. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust Him. Commit yourself to Him. Give yourself to Him fully. Because our God is a God who, send, who saves those with a tender heart, a terrorized heart, even a tough heart. God is still the one who saves. Let me ask you today, very pointedly, you may think I'm looking at you right now, and I hope you do, because that's the Holy Spirit's conviction. Have you truly accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, come meet me here. Well, there in the gathering, would you meet that minister right there? Confess your faith in Jesus. We'll help you. We'll talk to you about all the other things. Just come. Some of you who are saved, don't we need to be reminded that God still has the power to save our brother that is struggling in sin? 
I'm talking about our families. Oh, I got, I got family members need to be saved. And there are times in my life where I want to say, God, is this ever going to happen? He's still happening. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. Maybe this day during this invitation is a time for you as a saved individual to come and just say, I believe, God, that you have saved me. Thank you for that. But God, also, I pray for this person specifically that you'll save this individual. It may be a friend. It may be a family member. It may be a neighbor. It may be an associate. Listen, we all got one, at least one. Would we use this time of commitment to honor the Lord's name and to fulfill his word? in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, and Lord, again, we praise you for the salvation that you have provided through Jesus, your Son. There is no one else like him. There is no one else that could take away this, our sins or the sins of the world. Father, we praise you. But God, right now in this place, I pray that you'd save that one which is lost. God, if there were five in a congregation of 40 or 50, there's no doubt that there are individuals in this place and the gathering there that are lost. Maybe they don't want to come forward because of what people would think or what people would say, but God, I pray right now that you'd put away every distraction and that you would allow them to just focus on their relationship with you. Father, there's so many of us in here that have been saved. We recognize that. God, may this be a moment where we thank you for your salvation. A time where we bow where we are or maybe even come to the altar and pray for our loved ones and friends and even others who need you. God, speak to us now. Your Holy Spirit's power, which was evident in Acts 16, may it be evident here this morning. And we'll give you the glory when we end this service. In Jesus' name.